All right, family, let's, let's lift up a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray over these officers. They represent, Lord, not just these families here, but, Lord, so many others who daily serve our community and our country. We want to say thank you, Father, for their lives. Thank you for their testimony. Thank you for Boston saying, my daddy's a hero, but not, not sure what a stud is. And we thank you, God, for the joy that we have as a church to say thank you. Lord, through some, some pancake purchases and some t-shirts, I pray abundant blessings over the Rowlett Police Department Association. I pray that, God, you'd raise up plenty of funds. Bless these officers. Bless this community. We love you, Jesus, and we love these servants. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you. And thank you for the free shirt. I will wear it with pride. I drive a uh, red Nissan Titan. Always the speed limit. Unless I'm in a hurry to get somewhere to pray. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, well, this morning, let's open our Bibles. Everybody say, Word. We are in Acts chapter 8 in our journey uh, through the book of Acts. Uh, before we actually get into the text of this morning, I want to leave you with, I'm going to give you three uh, kind of principles or things to look, in, uh, look into, clue in on, three phrases uh, that will, will kind of set the, the, the skeleton of the message this morning. First, the fine print, okay? So if you're taking notes, you're putting in your pilot or writing it or wh- however you record this, maybe you're just filing away in your brain, but think of this, the fine print and then the persecutor and then the persecuted. So the fine print, the persecutor and the persecuted, that's the framework of this morning's message. Well, first, the fine print. Uh, Always read the fine print uh, is an important lesson. That was my lesson uh, years ago going to a car dealership to purchase a a brand new vehicle. I was excited. I'd seen this ad. I was like, there's no way that car's that price. And I drove up and they had a valet for my car. Little did I know they were taking it off to then go see what they could value it at. And I walked in and I said, I found the first salesman I could find. I said, I want to test drive this particular car. I'm excited. I'm ready to buy. And the guy goes, did you read the fine print? I was like, what does that have to do with me buying your car? I, I, I saw the ad. You mean that tiny little lettering at the bottom? There's no way I read that. And he goes, well, here, we've gone ahead and printed that fine print in bold print for you so you can read it. And then I very quickly realized that that particular car was not only way out of my price range, it was not what I was willing to pay. It cost too much. The cost of buying that car exceeded my willingness to buy it. And then I quickly made my way out of the dealership, got my car back, and drove off on my, my jalopy. Well, that, that was my experience at a car dealership, but I think that's an experience that some of us might face here in the church. You see, there are times when we enter into the faith that we, we place our faith in Christ, and it's, it's to a sales pitch, the advertised price of following Christ. It seems pretty small. In fact, we, we often hear these things like, come to God, have all your sins forgiven through faith in Christ, which is accurate, but then it's like, live a life of blessing filled with the Holy Spirit, and the church spends an ordinate amount of resource advertising a Christian life that ultimately keeps people comfortable and hopefully coming back. But then we're confronted With the true cost of following Christ, when we read the scripture, especially as we're going through the book of Acts, we're seeing people who are willing to pay a a huge price. They're willing to pay a substantial price. There's a cost. And just like we saw last week, a guy was willing to be dragged outside of the city and stoned to death for Christ. 
And, and it's really sad because, you know what, it, it's happened that, that the scriptures, like the, the text of the scriptures, have become like the fine print. We do nobody a service by, by short-selling or, or advertising the Christian life at a lesser cost than Jesus spoke of. Because when Jesus talked about what it takes to follow him, he said it was costly. In fact, you've got to first consider the cost before you say you're a disciple or even a Christian. And so I want to give you a little bit of the fine print. It shouldn't be the fine print. We should be all aware of this. But this fine print is found in Luke chapter 14. So just hold your place in Acts 8. Flip over to the left because I want you to get an idea. Wrap your mind around the, the, the fine print of our, our faith. And that this early church, they, they had considered the cost and they, they felt that it was worth the cost. They were willing to sign on the dotted line. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it, sound, it says now that with great crowds accompanied him, he turned and said to them, I wonder what Jesus would have said to a big crowd following him. Especially if he wanted that big crowd to come back, you know, and keep following him. You know, he might have said things like, follow me and I'll give you a worry-free life and uh, filled with zero sacrifice. Ultimate financial prosperity, health and happiness, and then eternal and lavish riches to follow. It costs you nothing, and you will gain everything. Is that what Jesus said to the crowds? No, not even kind of. In a jarring and jolting way, verse 26, if anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are shocking words. They were intended to be shocking. We know that Jesus was not telling us to go around hating people especially our spouses and our children and our neighbors. We're called to love, but what is Jesus saying here? He's saying we must love him most. We must love him above everything else. We must love him more than father or mother, wife or children, or even our very life. A way to kind of boil this down, it's, it is a progressive work of total devotion a progressive work of total devotion and loyalty to Christ above all. It's a willingness to follow in his footsteps of total obedience. That is why in, in verse 27, Jesus said this, whoever, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And we, we've kind of turned that into a, a cliche phrase, you know, I'm just bearing my cross. I, I was sitting on 635 going to work just bearing my cross, and, and I'm taking care of my five kids who for apparently are going to live with us until forever. And they, like, moved in, and they just, like, keep, like, living there. They're just, uh, I'm just bearing my cross. I ate a, a stack of pancakes today covered in syrup. I'm just bearing my cross for Jesus. But what, is, what Jesus is talking, he's not just talking about like the suffering or, or the stuff that we go through in the side. He's saying, are you willing to walk in total obedience? You see, Christ carrying his cross was not just a picture of him suffering. It was a picture of him walking in total obedience to the will and purposes of God the Father. The path up Golgotha was this, the footsteps of obedience. And so Jesus is saying, will you grow in progressive devotion and progressive obedience 
to him above all. In fact, he goes on to talk about the cost. Down to verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a willingness to progressively give up more and more and more and total devotion to Christ and obedience to Christ. I mean, I think this is a staggering cost. Don't you? I mean, it's an excess of everything we own, everything we've worked hard to achieve. It can come at the cost of a home. It can come at the cost of family. It can come at the cost of our very life. Following Christ can come at the cost of our very life. That's a staggering cost to consider, one that as I think about, I'm like, am I willing to do that? And as we turn to Acts chapter 8, we are literally witnessing a group of people who understood the cost and were willing to do it. They had read the fine print and they were willing to renounce everything, even their very life, as we saw last week as Stephen was dragged outside of the high Jewish council and stoned to death. Acts chapter 7, I know I said chapter 8, but let's start in chapter 7. Why not, right? Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Why did they stone him? Why? For committing blasphemy. What was his blasphemy? Proclaiming truth. Believing in Christ. Preaching Jesus. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning him, Stephen called out. He said, Lord, I'm coming. I'll be there in just a moment. Jesus said, receive my spirit. And on to the rest of verse 59. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He gave his life. Family, please do not minimize the potential cost of following Christ because if you do, you minimize the potential call of discipleship. We have literally been called to lay everything down for the sake of following Jesus. That is the fine print. And this is really the tipping point in the book of Acts where the progression of aggression has reached a boiling point with the fall of Stephen then the high Jewish council and the Jewish elite then turn their attention on the church. And a break, per, great persecution is about to break out. And, and so that's where we're now shifting our attention in the message. We're going to look at this text from two directions, two focal points. We're going to look at first the persecutor. We've already met him briefly. We're going to become more acquainted with the persecutor and the, the group that this great persecution uh, unfolds through, and then we're going to meet what well, we already have, the persecuted. Those who read the fine print and said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll follow. I'll be a disciple. We're going to find that the ringleader of this persecution that is about to descend on the early church was a young man named Saul. That is his Hebrew name, his Greek name, Paul. Some of you have been misled to believe that somehow Saul's name was changed to Paul when he became a believer. That's not true. His Hebrew name is Saul. His Jew or Greek name was Paul, Saulus Paulus. Well, this man, young man, we're going to grow to love through the study of the book of Acts. You really are going to love Paul when it is all said and done, but he first begins as one of the greatest villains 
of the early church. I quote here from R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul writes this, at the age, uh, there we go, at the age of 13, because of the prowess and brilliance that he'd already displayed, he was sent away from Tarsus to Jerusalem. No, go back to the other quote. That makes more sense. It's kind of out of order. There we go. We meet the early church's public enemy number one. We meet a man filled with hostility and hatred towards Christ and Christ's church, a man whose consuming passion can you imagine consuming passion was to literally eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth? A very gifted, well-trained Jewish theologian. He had grown up, Saul had grown up in the city of Tarshish, uh, where he was born. He was a Roman citizen who at roughly the age of 13 was sent away from Tarsus from his family, moved to Jerusalem, and studied under the rabbi of rabbis, Gamaliel. Gamaliel, who we met a few chapters ago, who offered some real sound, wise counsel as it related to Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. That is the Gamaliel that Paul studied under. Next quote from R.C. Sproul. At the age of 13, because of the prowess and brilliance that he had already displayed, he was sent away from Tarsus to Jerusalem to go to seminary, as it were, to study under the tutorship and leading theologian in the world at the time, Gamaliel. Saul studied under Gamaliel for seven years and re received the equivalent of two count them two PhDs in theology. It has been said by the age of 21, Saul of Tarsus was the most educated Jew in Palestine. He had mastered the Old Testament and all the rabbinic interpretations of it, and his star had risen in meteoric fashion. This is the persecutor the original persecutor of the early church. And we see him at the unjust murdering of Stephen, that, that literally the witnesses laid their coats down at the feet of this young man named Saul so that they could freely throw stones at Stephen. And just so we don't get the idea that maybe Saul was like a passive observer, he was like in the wrong place at the wrong time, look at the very first sentence of Acts chapter 8. The text says, And Saul approved of his execution. He didn't just approve or agree with or support. It literally brought Saul great joy to see this great enemy of the temple and Jewish faith destroyed. You see, Saul at the time did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that he was a deceiver. And he believed that the deceived were now blasphemers and they needed to be eradicated. They needed to be destroyed. Stoning of Stephen was just the very beginning. And this tells me something. You know what? There are times in our life where we can feel so right about something that we literally feel justified when another person suffers and even bringing suffering on others by our own actions, thinking we're doing the work of God. And then looking back, we realize just how terribly wrong we were. I've heard stories of aging people remembering their youthful and zealous racism of decades gone by, the pain that others suffered because of their hatred and the joy that it brought them at the time. Then with deep and painful remorse, they recognized later how sinfully sick they were, how absolutely wickedly wrong there would be a day you know, when Saul would realize how absolutely wrong he was, how sin-sick and evil, later, in fact, Paul or Saul would refer to himself as the chief of all sinners. And in his aged estimation at that point, that was not an exaggeration. 
But that's not where Saul is at at this moment. No, at this moment, only thing found in Saul was an intense hatred for the church and Christ, the people of the way, and that intense hatred like thrust him to the forefront of this great persecution that we read about. The end of verse 1, it says this, And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. I mean, it's the picture of like literally somebody taking seed and just scattering it throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, uh, except for the apostles. There was, there was apparently some level of protection afforded to the apostles that was not afforded to some of the other disciples. Some have argued that it was really just the Hellenist, the Greek believers that were thrust out of the city. But what we see here is this great persecution that unfolds. I find it interesting that Jesus in Acts 1 told the disciples that, hey, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts. But you will notice in that text that Jesus does not tell his disciples that the vehicle he's going to use to get them out to spread the gospel was not only the dunamai, the power of the Holy Spirit, but also be the power of persecution. Just so we have a better understanding of what persecution is, I've got a working definition. Here is what persecution is. It's the systematic harassment and oppression of a group of people due to their beliefs. A systematic harassment and oppression of a group of people due to their beliefs. This could also be according to, to people's race or philosophical leadings or, or uh, political affiliations. And I, I think this is interesting. You know, I just saw this this, this morning as, as I was considering this. The early church started off as the persecuted. But there have been like all kinds of pendulum swings throughout history. There are times where the church is the persecuted, and there are times when the church is the persecutor. Isn't that true? And I think to some extent, we are paying this for the sins of previous generations of the church who really did take the role of persecutor. But here in the text, they are clearly the persecuted, under this persecution of systematic harassment, I think that's a pretty decent way to describe what fell upon the early church, many literally had to run for their lives. They literally had to leave behind homes and, and their families, their livelihoods, as they were scattered like seed across the countryside, fleeing the heat of persecution. There continued to be a church in Jerusalem, but it wasn't like it was. And so in verse 2, not only is there this great persecution, but there's also this great lamentation in the city. Verse 2, it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. They literally gathered up the broken body of Stephen, carried the, him in their arms, cleansed his body, prepared him for burial, and put him into a place of, of burial, and then wailed. Great lamentation in, in the city of Jerusalem. Family, it's important for us to recognize that, that a part of the Christian life is going to be sorrow. Now, this is not our favorite topic of discussion, but very clear to the, the text, there are going to be times and seasons of great and terrible loss. And there are times where we will suffer unjustly. And, and there's great crying and wailing in the city this day. It wasn't just because of Stephen. It was also because of this great persecution because Saul, like a wild animal, began to attack and unleashed on the city of Jerusalem what could only be described as a tormenting and great persecution. Verse 3, it says, But Saul, 
So while the, this group of early worshipers are lamenting, but Saul was ravaging the church. It's a very unique word, ravaging. It's called the hapax legomena. It's found one time in the Greek New Testament. It's a rare word, so I'm trying to get at. That particular word found in other writings was used to refer to places where wild animals would tear and devour prey. Or where a wild hog would break into an orchard or a vineyard and root it up. Some of you have, have experienced the problems of wild hogs in fields. That's a great picture of what Saul was do, doing. He was rooting up. He was devouring. He was tearing apart. And just as the gospel spread house to house, Saul went house to house. It says in the text, he entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I, mean, I want you to wrap your mind around what's happening. People are literally being dragged from their homes. Husbands and, and wives, children being left behind, Christians being dragged through the streets to the onlooking shock or awe of the culture. They're being dragged through Jerusalem and being thrown into prison to await trial for blasphemy. And just as Stephen was put to death, most of them who were being dragged through the streets assumed that they would be treated to the same martyr's death. All for what? What were they being persecuted for? For the exact same thing we're doing right now. For believing in Jesus. For gathering together as a church. Later, Paul would speak about and even write about this chapter in his life. Again, there's those times where we've done some things in our past where we felt so justified in the moment. Oh, we were right. And then we come to find out later, oh no, we were wrong. There's a, there's a time in Paul's future where he's going to be brought up on trial. He's going to be arrested. In fact, the, those who arrest him want to put him to death. And so Paul, later in his life, stands before a group of Jewish religious people who are wanting to put him to death. And he is afforded the opportunity to speak to them. And he goes, hey guys, check this out. I was just like you. Just briefly, look over in Acts chapter 22. These are the words of the persecutor later in life words of the persecutor later in life. He, says, he said to this big crowd, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarshish of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He's like, I'm a religious pedigree, guys. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He's telling this group of folks that believe they're doing God's work. He's like, look, I was zealous like you. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. It's like I was doing the same thing you guys are doing. I was wrong. Another passage of Scripture in chapter 26, he's speaking to Roman officials. Chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. He goes, I myself, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did it. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison. Oh, he calls them saints now. After receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I was there cheering it on. Like, yeah! Put him to death. I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Like, he would literally go 
into the synagogue, and he would find Christian believers in the synagogue. He would grab them, drag them to the center of the synagogue in front of all the people, and literally beat them into submission until they would blaspheme the name of Jesus. He's like, that's what I did. And in rage and in fury against them, I persecuted even them to the foreign cities. And he wouldn't stop. Until Jesus knocked him off a donkey under his rear end. He poured every ounce of energy he had into exterminating the church. He saw the church as an infestation of blasphemy needing to be eradicated. But what actually happened, the church was not eradicated. It was scattered. See, what he was trying to do is the same thing that we try to do as we shift in our attention now to think about the persecuted. The same thing we try to do when we try to put to death the dandelions in our yard. I don't know the the bane of my existence during the summer months. Spring and summer months is my yard. Got all kinds of weeds and crabgrass. I just decided I'm just going to go ahead and round it all up. Anyway... There are those moments when those dandelions go from that nice color yellow to white. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And you go up to it and you pick it and you're like, <laughs> I've killed you. I've blown your dead asses to the wind. Only to come out and find out next year, all I did was scatter the seed. Thousands more popped up. It's exactly what's happening right now. Saul thinking by ravaging the church he could pluck that dandelion and blow it to its death, but what he actually did was scatter the gospel. Look at verse 4, the persecuted. It says, now those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. It's amazing how persecution simplified their life. They understood that they were about one thing and one thing only. Spreading the name of Jesus. In fact, as we unfold the rest of Acts, we're going to see that, that this persecution literally spread the gospel out. That we're believers today because of this great persecution that broke out in the first century in the church. And we come to recognize that the church is not put to death by persecution, but scattered like seed, north, south, east, and west. They took the gospel of the good news of Jesus out Nothing could stop them, but it came at a cost. Those that we are reading about this morning, those who are simply described as the scattered, they were being put to death. They were losing everything. They were being thrown into prison. They were running for their lives. They were being beaten and having their homes ransacked. They were being systematically oppressed and harassed being accosted in places of gathering, and being forced under the threat of death to turn against and renounce the name of Jesus. This group of people we're reading about suffered for the exact same thing we're doing this morning. Let that sink in for a moment. Did you know there are places right now, right now, on earth, where just by doing this, potentially through those doors could come 
people who could drag us to prison or put us to death immediately. Staggering cost. And as Americans, we're like, well, that's not going to happen here. So I guess we don't really have to consider this passage. Or the fine print that Jesus talked about, or a cross, or any suffering. We can just hopscotch over that, right? Because that's not our part of our experience. That, that's certainly not going to be part of our future. That's one approach. As we unfold the rest of this chapter on into the rest of the book, we're going to come to recognize that the most important thing through it all was not the protection and safety of the individual believer, but it was that the gospel spread. That was the most important thing. We will see scattered seed, one, one seedling by the name of Philip, who was, who was just like Stephen, a, a table server, who was scattered, and he ends up in a city of Samaria, and he begins to preach, as we'll see next week. And powerfully, might I add, thousands reached with the gospel. Through the persecution, the, the gospel went out, and we're going to have to continually encounter those who so believed in Jesus, those who were so willing to pay the cost that maybe we ourselves will be challenged to consider, are we willing to follow Christ and truly be his disciples? Even though, progressively, more and more of our life, we will have to renounce. Something to consider. So let's, let's talk about applications. How do we apply such a passage? First, the fine print. We've looked at that. We need to recognize that the Christian life is costly. We need to consider that cost, not just because of passages like this, but because Jesus told us that if we want to be disciples, he demands total devotion, like progressively more and more, which is hard. <laughs> because a close friend of mine this week, he looked at, looked at me and he goes, you know what, Chris? You're a Jacob. I was like, I got a feeling it's not a compliment. He goes, you wrestle with God. You're a God wrestler. I was like, that's kind of another way of saying I'm stubborn. And I am. I wrestle with God. Like, laying my whole life down, man, I just like, the whole idea of not being in control, and it is so difficult for me, but I'm, I'm like, praying more, like, Lord, teach me more and more to be completely devoted to you. Like, more and more of my life, more and more of my heart, my mind, everything, like, may you be the most important thing in my life. Because what happens when we finally reach a place of total surrender, you want to know what happens? We discover we're not putting ourselves under the heavy hand of a tyrant or the cruel hand of an oppressor, the more and more we submit in total devotion and loyalty to Christ, the more and more we submit ourselves under the gracious yoke of our good shepherd. And so my prayer, and I, I hope your prayer this week is, please, Jesus, grow my devotion to you this week. Please grow my devotion. Secondly, waging wars. 
Interestingly enough, you know, I see in this passage this persecutor, a very educated, passionate, zealous, religious man who was also horribly wrong. Saul used everything at his disposal to eradicate, to destroy, and persecute the church. And later in life, he deeply regretted the harm he caused others. But at the time, he felt so stinking justified. It's amazing to me how we can feel so justified when what we are doing is absolutely wrong, only to later find out, oh man. There's times where we're like, I'm fighting God's battles. Isn't that interesting? All of a sudden, God, you and God are like fighting the same battles. God and I together. And later on we discover, oh, it wasn't God at all. There are a lot of wars being fought in our culture today, family. Please listen up. There's a lot of wars being fought in our culture. And they're war of words and sometimes war of fists and sometimes war of bullets. Philosophical, political, religious, racially driven. There's lots of lines being drawn. Lots of people taking a stand. We've got football players and presidents, Facebook bashers and Twitter rampagers, husbands and wives, neighbors, fellow church attenders. We're just like waging war. And we're so justified. Something happens, we're like, oh, I'm going to go voice my opinion on Facebook. I'm glad they upped the, the number 280 digits. I'm going to tell it when I think on Twitter. I'm, I should bump it up to 480, 460. I need a thousand words. Did you know that some of the wars that you're fighting today, on a personal level, may later be the substance of your greatest regret? Did you know that the wars that you may be fighting today, the stands that you're taking, may actually be the substance of your greatest regrets later in life? Family, please listen to this. Be instigators of peace instigate peace. And if we're going to take a stand for anything, let's, let's take a stand to be a servant. To love and share Jesus. You know, today I'm going to take a stand. Hand me that broom. I don't think I'll ever regret that. I don't think I'll ever look back and go, man, I wasted so much time loving people. What a waste. I wasted so much time instigating peace and sharing the love of Jesus with the world. Gosh, I wish I could have that time back. Do we honestly believe we're going to look back and think those things? No way. You want to know what the greatest treasure is at a memorial service? are the people who stand up over your casket and who say, I was impacted by love. This person loved Jesus and loved people. Be careful with the wars we wage. Sometimes we can be the persecutor and not even know it. And then finally, I'll end here, the power of persecution. 
the early church was a real utopic kind of place. It's the kind of church I want to go to. You know, they're of one heart, one mind, one soul. They had everything in common. They're like going house to house to the temple with joy and praising. And, you know, I could just see them. It's like a musical, you know. They're just like, oh, praise the Lord from whom all blessings flow. And they're just jamming. And I can imagine if the apostles stood up in one of those, one of those beautiful utopic scenes. And, all right, guys, I know we're all enjoying Yeah, that's cozy in here. Uh, we're going to go ahead. We're going to need to have, we're going to have to scatter you now. And uh, we're going to have to send out a few thousand of you, north, south, east, and west. You're going to have to just leave everything here and then uh, just go out because we've been told to take the gospel of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. Can you imagine what people would respond with? I'm not going. I like it here. You see, we think that comfort is going to bring about the greatest change, but often it's not comfort, it's discomfort, and sometimes even downright difficult stuff. If things had remained peaceful and comfortable, the gospel never would have spread the Gentiles never would have been reached. We wouldn't be believers today. God used that vehicle of persecution to get the gospel out. It cleared away the unnecessary and allowed for great clarity of purpose. And it takes a lot to get us moving the direction God wants us to move. And sometimes he allows difficult situation and persecution in our lives and in the lives, uh, lives of our community to scatter us so the gospel goes out. And when Christ is above everything, that should be our primary concern. Not our circumstantial comfort, but Lord Jesus, please reach this generation with your message. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your scriptures and for our time together, our study. It has been edifying. It has been encouraging. It has been challenging. All of the things that we should expect when we open your word. I pray that more this week we'd be willing to bend our knees, just like your scriptures record, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of your Father. Lord, I pray that is not some future event, but I pray that you who began this good work in us continues it so that more and more we bend our knee to you, humbling ourselves before you in total progressive devotion and loyalty. Jesus, may your will and purposes be more important to us than anything else on earth. I pray that we would be filled with a radical love. If you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you have not received him as your Savior, the Bible records that you are separated from God. No amount of good work can bring you into a good standing with God. Not the true God. In fact, we're all so separated from God that God sent his son, motivated by love, crushed him. Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice to pay for the world's sins that all who believe in him, all who receive him, will be saved and forgiven. If you have not received Jesus as a savior, your savior, in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried, and I believe you have raised. And just as Pastor Chris talks about, just as your word states, that those who believe in you will be saved, please, Jesus, save me. Please save my life. If that is your heart's prayer, you've just passed from, from death to life. But just know, after you say, I believe, Jesus then says, follow. You've just begun the journey of following Christ the rest of your life.
Welcome to that journey. So, Lord, above all, may you be glorified in our life, in our worship, and in our praise. Lead us, guide us, and direct us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Don't worry if you haven't T-voted it. The Cowboys are going to whoop up on the Rams. Oh, y'all didn't know that. Now go into the world in peace. Hold on to what is good. Have courage. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Till we meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now go tell the world, go declare to the world, go proclaim to the world that they are too. Have a wonderful week in Jesus.